0: From the Defense Acquisition University, this is The Learning Circle.
1: This is The Learning Circle. I'm Anthony Rotolo, and my guest today is Dr. Clark Quinn. Dr. Quinn is a well-known and respected contributor to the learning field. The first recipient of the eLearning Guild's Guild Master Award, he has spoken internationally and consults to the Fortune 500, government, education, and not-for-profit organizations. He's a best-selling author in the field, and his most recent book is titled Revolutionize Learning and Development, with the subtitle Performance and Innovation Strategy for the Information Age. Dr. Quinn, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Anthony. I appreciate the opportunity to talk. Really happy to have you here. Now, you make the strong point that the world has changed. Technology has disrupted everything. And now it's not enough to just execute a business plan. We have to innovate. And we've got to remove the barriers to ongoing innovation. I wonder if we could begin here and if you might expand on this idea and what it means for us as learning practitioners. So it's no secret, it's well documented, that things are moving
0: faster We're getting more information. Competitors are able to challenge us with greater speed. We must be more nimble and more agile. And the traditional role of L&D was to support optimal execution, to make sure that we could plan, prepare, and then execute against what we knew we had to do. And we had to do that well. And that's fine. But in today's day and age, that is just going to be the cost of entry. You're going to have to do that just to stay in the game. And the only sustainable differentiator is going to be the ability to continually innovate. We're going to have to find ways to create new products, new ideas, solve problems faster. And so the role of L&D in making that happen will not only have to be sufficient for what we're doing, But it also has to start encompassing, how do we facilitate that innovation? And I think there is a role for L&D in there. In fact, I think that may be their greatest contribution. That may be the trick. That's the opportunity for L&D really to move forward. But we have to seize it. Right now, I have a statement that L&D isn't doing near what it could and should. What it is doing, it's doing badly. Other than that, that's good. (laughs) But we're not really doing well. Our designs aren't for learning aren't really optimal. And we're just so far have been ignoring that whole opportunity to facilitate innovation. And that's the opportunity on the table that I'd like to suggest we should take advantage of. So in addition to the threat of change, there's also opportunity is what you're saying. Absolutely. Successful organizations are finding ways to do this, but it may not come from L&D. And I want to suggest that it should because it takes understanding how people's brains work. And really, nobody else in the organization really is supposed to be specialized in that. So that's the opportunity for l But I think they have to seize it or they're going to be relegated to an appendage
1: that's unnecessary. Well, that's good news. That's a good news that we have that potential pathway. And you've said that you see digital technology as an answer, that it actually complements the way we learn and work. So that offers us hope, right? Well, yes. Technology by itself isn't the answer, but using it in appropriate ways is...
0: The thing is, our brains, our powerful brains that have allowed us to succeed and take over the planet and continue to progress and increase the quality of life, are really good at certain things. They're good at pattern matching and meaning making. But the flip side of that ability, no one architecture can be good at all of it, is that we're kind of bad at remembering arbitrary and rote information. We're also bad at doing complex calculations in our head. So it turns out that digital technology is the exact opposite. It's really hard to make digital technology do pattern matching and meaning making. You know, there's some very sophisticated, expensive systems that can do it somewhat in very limited domains. But as for remembering large amounts of abstract and arbitrary information for performing incredibly complex calculations, it's great. So if we couple ourselves appropriately with technology, if we align it appropriately, we complement our ability and make ourselves much more formidable problem solvers. And so if we leverage technology appropriately and couple it with us. We don't replace ourselves with technology. There are times when we should, you know, anything so simple and automatic that you just follow a step-by-step procedure, automate, but for leave us to those really interesting challenges, decisions in somewhat ambiguous circumstances, that's where we shine. And so if we couple that together, we provide greater opportunities for better solutions for ourselves, for our organizations and for society. So the robots are not taking over today, right? There are things they should take over, yes. but there are things we should leave to ourselves. And we have the choice. You know, Right now, we have the control. Let's keep it and decide what we want to do and what we want technology to do. And let's do that in ways that empower us and give us better
1: outcomes at the end of the day. Yeah, a smart and selective implementation of technology. When it comes to leveraging technology, you've said that we first have to change assumptions, assumptions that are rooted in old workplace models and classic hierarchies. How have things changed? I mentioned aligning. We have a number
0: of assumptions about how we actually operate, about how our brains are, that have been documented not to be correct, that we've elaborated and, and understood better. So one of the things we have is about how we think. And we have this model that all our thinking is in our head, and we dump everything in the head, and then it comes out, and we've got this little black box. And instead, we now understand that our cognition is distributed, uh, cognition in the wild. And we use external representations. We use lookup tables. We use Excel spreadsheets to represent our understanding. We use diagrams and checklists and all sorts of external support to make our thinking more effective. So this notion that we have to put everything in the head has been the way L&D has operated, the way training has said, oh, well, don't, we need them to remember all the features of this product, which is sparking mad, particularly as products change faster and faster. Instead, we should put that information in the world because if you put it in and then it changes, it's much harder to get them to learn it anew. So let's put that information in the world and have how to access it be the way. So the first misalignment is how we think. The second one is how we work. There's this notion that the individual innovator goes away and comes back with a new answer. And that has been busted. You can look at the research, uh, Keith Sawyer's book, Group Genius, or Stephen Berlin Johnson's Where Good Ideas Come From, shows that our innovation comes from working together, from that creative friction of us wrestling with ideas together and bringing in diverse viewpoints. So we really need to start recognizing that doing courses alone and working alone, there are important touch points where we need to get together and we get better quality faster. You know, the room is smarter than the smartest person in the room, with the caveat, if you manage the process right. So we've got to start recognizing that. And the third way we're broken is not aligned with how we learn. We do not learn by having a bunch of information dumped on us and are and then being tested to see if we have that knowledge, because what will happen is we'll demonstrate that we have that knowledge. We'll go out in the real world where it's relevant. Won't even get activated. So what you know? What does work? What does lead to meaningful skill changes? Is the is practice facilitated practice with you know guided reflection. And so we need to shift the way we're doing learning. And yet this pressure from rapid e-learning tools, well, we get it from the SMEs and we'll package it up and we'll add a quiz and learning will happen. And it's like, no, it won't. Um, and put it in the hands of the SMEs and they can put all their information. And so the, the point is we're not aligned with how we think work and learn. And when we rethink that and start recognizing that we have information distributed in the world and amongst people we have a connected world and we want to leverage that and we want to leverage that in our work and we want to leverage that in our
1: learning we have the opportunity to do much better so it's okay to have that external brain I mean, we're, we're in a googleized world where we can reference and the it's the premium isn't on having it all in your head and then a recognition of how the process just like the creative process it's messy and non-linear right It's not as neat and clean as we think it is. And more traditional training, faster, smaller, isn't necessarily the answer. On the contrary, the way our brains learn are little bits over
0: time. There's only so much learning that can happen any one day before literally the strengthening of the circuits. And you know the way learning really works in our brains is we activate patterns of activation. And if we activate two things together, it strengthens the links between them. But that strengthening, only so much can happen any one day. And then it literally needs rest. Before yes. it can be reactivated and strengthened again. And so we need to space learning out over time. And that event model is just broken. Somebody once said the event model is about the worst thing you could do to cause, to make learning happen. And we need to start distributing information over the world. And we need to distribute our learning over time. We need to take that much more distributed approach. And when we do and start, you know, again, aligning technology with that and aligning our processes with that. We're going to have a much better outcomes, and it actually makes a more humane workplace as well.
1: So how does the role of training versus performance support change in light of the new digital affordances? So we need to take a different approach. Right now, too much
0: of l is, you know, people come and say, I need a course on X, and they're very good, and they go talk to the SMEs, and the SMEs says, oh, they need to know this, and they need to know this. And then they produce a course that meets what is said, And that's ineffective in a number of ways. So when we start we shouldn't say, okay, a course is needed. So one of the ways L and D has to shift is start becoming performance consultants. The focus, the overall focus is start focusing on the outcomes and measuring that to see if we're getting there. But we need to start and say what's the problem? What's the evidence you have that you need some intervention. What's your business indicator? Are sales not, you know, are it costing too much or are hit rates too low or the sales cycle is too long? In our call centers, are we have, um you know, taking too long to resolve. Does it take too many calls to resolve? Do we have low customer satisfaction? What are the metrics that indicate the problem? And then you say, you do a root cause analysis and say, is that because they don't know what they need to know? Is it because they don't have the information? Is it have they can't do it? Do they have the wrong incentives or rewards? And then if it's a skill gap, you do a course. But if it's a knowledge gap, you might do a job aid or a lookup table or something and or a checklist. And otherwise, you might change the incentives. They're perfectly capable of doing it, but they're rewarded for doing this other thing. They're not going to do the thing you want them to So, one of the world shifts is to become performance consultants, and then, and this is on that optimal execution side, we figure out what's the gap between where we know we should be and we are now, and what's the right intervention, so we might look at a richer suite of solutions. And on the other side, there's two types of facilitation that we need to have. Start facilitating working and playing well together. This facilitating the innovation, and also facilitating the learning to learn, so Instead of just going in and doing training and then leaving people alone, we want to start developing them over time. So you look at like the 70-20-10 model, which says 10%. You ask people who are expert at doing something, where did you learn that? 10% roughly. You know, the numbers aren't exact, mm-hmm. but Some small proportion came from formal instruction. A bigger chunk tends to come from social mentoring and coaching. And then a lot of it comes from I tried it. I had to do it. I failed. I learned. I got better. But facilitating and helping people learn to learn. So I divide up the, the new roles for L&D, you know, not including the leadership and the management and, and, but just in the trenches, the roles are performance consultant, which includes that analysis and design. And those might be different people and the facilitation side, the facilitation of how do I learn alone? How do I have good search skills? Because investing in learning to learn is one, arguably one of the best investments you could make because as things change faster, you're not going to be able to provide all the learning people need. But don't assume that all your people are also well-practiced in all the forms of self-learning. There's that assumption, and yet our schooling system, unfortunately, isn't yet capable of doing that. That needs to be remedied, but for now, organizations should assume that they should take some responsibility in helping facilitate that and so that you sort of get a, a shift on one side; it's about the optimal execution, but the other side is this role in the continual innovation side
1: of it. So this is kind of a Pareto's law of learning, right? The 2010 is a variation on. On the 80, this, Yeah, this proportion. What is the seventy percent? That's experience. Being given stretch assignments
0: and maybe failing, but it's making it okay to fail and what's the lesson you learned mm-hmm. or getting it right and getting rewarded, you know, and I don't necessarily mean financial incentives, but recognition and so you can celebrate either one, a lesson learned or an accomplishment. But either way you're you know, you're developing. So it's just doing the job but being supported and learning from the stuff you actually do. Too often you just do it and we don't have time to reflect. And yet when we find if we do give time for reflection, less time working, and yet we're more productive than if we spent all that time working. By that time
1: for reflection, because we improve as we go along, the output is actually better. That's fantastic. That's very powerful, that observation. So looking ahead, what does a 21st century learning and development professional look like? What's our role? Well, those were the performance consultant and that learning facilitation.
0: And I have to be clear, many people think learning is just developing our abilities. But when you do innovation, when you do problem solving, you do troubleshooting, you do new product design, you do creativity, you don't know the answer when you start. So those to me are also learning opportunities. And that's why I want L&D to be facilitating those because they're supposed to understand what learning Looks like and how it works well, and they should be facilitating those so that we're getting the optimal outcomes. We know that just putting people in a room and giving them a problem and asking them to brainstorm isn't the most optimal approach. You want to give them the problem beforehand and give them each time to think about it alone before you bring them together. You can actually do it in the same room, but you don't put up the problem and immediately start discussing it. Everybody needs the time for their own processing to happen, and that those nuances on processes that bring out the best. That's the opportunity for l to take on. So we know, you know, I described a fairly, you know, good depth what the optimal execution side is. It's that performance consulting and then knowing whether it's incentives or better design job aids or whether it's, you know, performance support or whether it's courses. And there is a role for courses. One of the things people say, is, Oh, well, you just want to get rid of trainers. No, there's a role for courses, but we can do them much better. They're much about. In some sense, they're also facilitation. So to me, I I don't want to call it L&D anymore. I want to call it P&D. It's performance and development. And the performance side is that performance consulting. And then it's facilitation. And even our courses should be about designed practice and guided reflection on that, facilitating the learning as opposed to information presentation. Yeah, there will have to be some information that they apply. So the role becomes facilitator and analyst and designer as opposed to
1: course designer purely so does the new term we hear about flipping classrooms does that play into this that's a way to do it what that does it says let's
0: prepare them so we use that face-to-face time for valuable activities like being given group problems and solving them together and being facilitated reflection use that time we're together face-to-face to do social stuff don't use it for information presentation take that offline now I also suggest that part of that prior time is not just information presentation, but give them little tasks that are like what they're going to do in it, but give them, you know, embryonic ones. But there's enough ambiguity that they're not certain about it. And then one of the first things you do when you come together is say the instructor should look at the outputs and see if there's any systematic patterns to address, but otherwise just provide feedback on that and then scaff, that, you know, reactivates the knowledge and scaffolds them into the task. So again, there's nuances on these that make a real difference in in how you take advantage of it. But absolutely, it's flipping the classroom, spaced learning, micro learning, little bits
1: reactivation over time, lots of elements that really help this flourish. Yeah. And I'm hearing a lot more about the forgetting curve these days. And I guess that plays into this distribution of content that you're talking about.
0: Absolutely. You know, it, it's just sparking mad. Arguably the most complex thing in the known universe is the human brain. And the thought that we can take this simplistic approach to designing learning and have it be effective. And I want our learning designers to... It's its rocket science. You shouldn't think... You know, I i love Cami Bean and I think her book Accidental Instructional Designer is a great service to the industry, but it's also a huge indictment of the industry that you could have accidental people doing one of these most complex tasks. And we need to raise... The understanding of what's at stake, and then raise our game to match. Instruction designers shouldn't be the last refuge of the <laughs> incompetent. That's right, that's right.
1: Now, you've identified three things that undergird the transformation that we need. The three things are infrastructure, strategy, and culture. Can you expound upon these? Absolutely. So, when we have these roles, when we have this knowledge, we
0: talked about the technology and that's the infrastructure. And I don't think there's one all singing, all dancing solution. You know, contrary to what the vendors would like you to believe, I don't think you should. In a small shop, you might have to, but ideally you're using best of breed because you're bringing in your social networks for ways to collect, connect that collaboration doesn't have to be face to face. It can be online. We're seeing increasingly powerful output comes from distributed communication and collaboration. We have these. Collaborative documents are fabulous ways to get the best outcome. But you want to be coupling that with portals of resources for people to just find that performance support or get the knowledge to self-develop over time. And then you also need your course delivery solutions, which are distributed across the desktop and mobile And so you want to be integrating that to create what I call the performance ecosystem, all the resources you need organized in a user-centric manner. So the tool person is working on the task to hand and the tools are to hand instead of having to go here for there and there for this. So that's the infrastructure. The second part of the strategy, because you ain't there, (laughs) and but you don't want to get there, try and do it all at once. One of the things we know is that huge efforts at uh, change in organizations have about a Likelihood of seventy percent failure rate. So instead, you want to make small changes, and then you want to figure out the ones that are smart that will give you leverage to go further. That's you know get a success, and they'll say, "Oh well, you're doing well." Let's and you say you need this. Well, let's you want to make the case, and you want those to build on one another, getting you towards that vision of the full performance ecosystem. So that's your strategy is to start figuring out where am I going to start, and it changes a lot depending on where you are versus somebody else. And I don't like that the mention of best practices. Well what they did we're going to import because their context is different. Abstract to the best principles and then recontextualize those for your situation. So that's your strategy. And then finally culture eat strategy for breakfast. So you're not you can get some benefit from making this shift, but you're not going to get that full benefit without changing to a learning culture. Because if it's not safe to share, if you have what I call the Miranda organization where anything you say can and will be held against you, yes, <laughs> how many people are actually going to be contributing? And yet that's what it takes to really get the benefits of that continual innovation. That agility comes from people sharing together and being willing to offer ideas and take constructive feedback and be wrong or be right. But the more you get everybody participating, you have diversity. There's a number of elements that make a really effective learning culture. And again, you're not going to get there overnight, but again, small steps, small experiments and being willing to, you know, if it fails, okay, let's figure out why it didn't move forward. But you want to move towards not only a performance ecosystem technology infrastructure, but you want to move to a culture where sharing is valued and you're open to new ideas and it's you have time for reflection so that there can be this continual improvement. And those three elements have to be coupled together to truly realize the
1: opportunity that we have. I think in this idea of culture, organizations have to be careful about mixed messages because you can say all the encouraging things, but if there are practices or policies that put a wet blanket on it all, these are things you have to be careful of. I agree. You have to have an open and honest assessment of your culture. Now, it doesn't
0: have to be totally top down. It's great if you get buy-in, but if you read something around scaling of excellence, talk about finding small pockets of success and Understanding them and then finding ways to spread them small, slowly. But they did a systematic analysis of the companies that succeeded at change. And I was looking at culture change because I realized this is becoming critical and, you know, they better understand it. And they talked about the place that exceeded had scaled and been willing to do the hard yards. And they said, it's not an air war. It's ground war <laughs> was their metaphor that you have to be making changes. And this is where organizational change comes in. And there's this so. Uh, heard a speaker talk about change. He said, people resist change, right? No, that's a myth. They don't. People make changes all the time. They change jobs. They choose, they get married. They have children. These are all big changes, but they choose them. And that's the difference. He said, people don't resist change, but they want to choose. So you present the opportunities and then you um, get it. But it, it can be hard, particularly if it's instilled at the executive level to in the old ways and the hierarchical top down, one person does the thinking for a bunch of people underneath yes. them. Yes. That's, it's hard to change. And yet we've seen success even in the military, uh, Stamina Crystals, Team of Teams, and I'm going to forget the name of that group of people in, in Iraq who were just were not adapting to the changes of the, uh, Opposition, and so they started sharing what they learned in one region with another. And when they flattened out and opened the communication channels, they got much more effective at adapting and succeeding. And so, even in one of the most hierarchical organizations in the in the in the world, and historically that way, we've seen that it can be much more powerful when we make this happen. So, there are good models. There are ways to make a change, and you and you. At the end of the day, you are going to have to, or you are going to be beaten by somebody who can do that.
1: Air War versus Ground War, I like that one. And that's a real epiphany, this idea that people aren't afraid of change, but they want to have a bit of control of their destiny. That's mm-hmm. that's the issue.
0: And you have to have, you know, a good change says anticipate where people will struggle, you know, so you, you motivate it, and then sometime after you you can expect pretty well when they're gonna start backsliding. And that's when you wanna go out and reinvigorate them and you are gonna continue celebrate the people who are doing it right, and you're gonna to wanna to go in and deal with people who aren't doing it well and you want to reward them and you want to anticipate where they're going to have troubles and be prepared for that and then have a separate SWAT team who's going to deal with the ones that you didn't anticipate. But this was that change structure that Peter DeAger talked about. And when you get those things aligned and do your basic change management, it
1: can be done. Even culture can be changed. Yes, Dr. Quinn, thank you. This has been a tremendous conversation. Our listeners will appreciate this appreciate you coming on the show. Oh, thank you, Anthony, for the chance because there's too big an opportunity not to try and and
0: make it happen. So thanks for the opportunity to talk about it. Oh, our pleasure. Thank you again. Thank you for listening. To catch up on all of our shows, subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Learning Circle is produced and distributed by the Defense Acquisition University.